Welcome back to Psychic Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. It's been a little bit of time. Um, I had got some veneers and I wanted to take a step back because it was making me lisp a little bit and I needed to kind of um, get used to speaking with them so I didn't have that lisp. And then around the time I was going to start recording again, I got an infection in my stomach called H. pylori. Um, that could be extremely dangerous for me because I have something called colitis. So the doctor was concerned that if it was able to migrate to my intestinal tract, it could actually call, cause perforations in my intestines. So um, I wasn't able to record for a little bit because of that. And then right as I was over that infection, I got COVID. So <laughs> I was sick for quite a while and I wasn't able to record. Now I'm back, I'm better. So, um, like I always say, thank you so much for hanging in there and listening. I appreciate you guys more than you will ever begin to know. Um, so welcome. Um, if this is your first time, uh, listeners from all over the world, I never, ever thought anybody from other countries would, uh, listen. So, uh, I appreciate it so much. Um, this week, we are going to look into a <clears throat> psychiatrist who misused his practice. Um, the reason that I find this incredibly interesting, as you know, I'm a clinician myself, and I think that a lot of people don't understand or know what to look for in a therapist or a counselor, what is appropriate behavior. Um, in the United States, we have uh, issues with people her not really seeing people for really talk therapy. They're just prescribing. Um, I know we have someone in our area who is seeing people in just like 15 minute increments and prescribing things. Um, I need you to really know and understand if you are seeing a psychiatrist and on your first visit, they diagnose you with something without taking what's called a biopsychosocial. This is a history of not just your physical um, history, um, your history, your family history. Um, it's a history of any mental health issues you've been through. It's a history of like your social situation, what's uh, your family makeup, your um, relationships with people within your family. If you don't get a biopsychosocial at a minimum, and in the first visit, they are diagnosing you with things like personality disorders, uh, psychotic disorders. You need to get a second opinion, okay? So to be diagnosed with something like that without getting any kind of history, um, without, you know, there's a battery of tests that you should be doing, you know, when they, to get a better understanding because a lot of things mirror each other and have similar symptoms especially personality disorders. Um, the cluster B personality disorders have very similar symptoms and it takes a while to differentiate them from each other. So if you ever go to see a psychiatrist and in the first appointment, they are you know, diagnosing you with complex personality disorders and with no histories and just giving you medications, I really, really, really encourage you to get a second opinion. It can be dangerous, um, especially if you're already on medications. Uh, prescribing things like benzodiazepines and Xanax 
that have, you know, long-term effects. Um, the side effects of long-term use can be dangerous. Um, that's why you want someone who's going to take your history, who is going to take several visits to ask you multiple questions um, about, yes, you may be feeling depressed, but when did it start? Around what did it start? Were there any major changes in your life when things started? Um, there's different kinds of depression, you know, so just saying that you have a depressive disorder is not necessarily enough. You need to get to the underlying root of the issue. Uh, you really want someone who's going to take the time, not just to diagnose the issue, but specifically what it is. It might not just be just depression. It could be seasonal depressive disorder. If you have recently had children, you'd be postpartum depression. It could be uh, depression related to a trauma that is unresolved. There's so many different things when it comes to depression. It's not always just as simple as you are depressed. Um, bipolar is misdiagnosed a lot. Um, it is a very um, easy uh, scapegoat for uh, mental illness. So it is super important that when you do see someone for the first time, when you see a mental health professional, make sure they're taking a biopsychosocial, they're getting a complete history. If you're being diagnosed without them getting a complete history, like I said, it, it, I can't express how important it is for you to get a second opinion. If you felt uncomfortable in any way with what people are telling you, um, if you just feel like they're not putting the time in and it, then please get a second opinion. And that goes with therapy in general. If you feel like the connection isn't working and you don't feel comfortable opening up to them, ask for someone else. You can ask to change people. Um, that's perfectly acceptable. You have to have a certain type of rapport in order to be able to do the work you need to do. Um, a lot of people aren't told these things about therapy, um, about seeing a psychiatrist. It's not supposed to be just about medicating you. It is supposed to be about getting to the underlying issues and having you be able to deal with things and resolve the feelings and emotions that you have surrounding certain issues. So that's the reason your appointments are supposed to be an hour long. So you actually can get to the root of certain emotional issues that you are having. If you are not having these appointments, you may need to have a secondary provider. You may have to have a psychologist or a counselor that will give you the talk therapy that you need to resolve these issues. Um, many practices are actually set up in that manner where they'll have counselors to provide the talk therapy that you need and then you'll only see the psychiatrist once a month or once every three months to do you know blood work and make sure that your med stabilized so that is a much better setup than just having you you know meet with them 15 minutes once a week and you're not actually getting <clears throat> excuse me the help that you really need so <clears throat> excuse me as you can tell i'm still a little bit hoarse so bear with me <clears throat> keep that in mind and just be very careful there's a lot of online therapy services that are popping up and make sure that they're not just you know about medicating you and that they are helping you actually get the talk therapy that you need that is going to help you resolve the underlying issues 
So keep all those things in mind when you are going through your mental health journey. It should not just be about medicating you. It should also be about working through the issues, the underlying issues that have caused you to be in this situation. All right, so that being said, um, we will get started with this week's situation. Transference is a phenomenon in which one seems to direct feelings or desires related to an important figure in one's life, such as a parent, towards someone who is not that person. In the context of psychoanalysis or therapy, a patient is thought to demonstrate transference when they express feelings toward the therapist that appear to be based in the patient's past feelings about someone else. The concept of transference emerged from Sigmund Freud's psychoanalytic practice in the 1890s. Freud believed that childhood experiences and internal conflicts formed the foundation for one's development and their personality traits as an adult. Psychoanalysis aims to uncover those unconscious conflicts, which may be responsible for current patterns of emotional and behavioral, develop, uh, behavioral aspects of you. Transference is one method with with which through those conflicts may be recognized and hopefully resolved. The repetition of emotional responses to one individual, such as a parent, in the context of a different relationship is theorized to take place without conscious awareness. However, a person can become consciously aware of this pattern. Indeed, drawing attention to and seeking to interpret the transference exhibited by a patient is one goal of psychoanalysis and psychodynamic therapy. While much of Freud's framework has proven difficult to validate, his theories spurred the growth of psychology and a number of his ideas, including transference, remain relevant to therapists today. Especially in psychoanalysis and psychodynamic forms of psychotherapy, transference is considered a useful tool in therapy, both positive and negative kinds of transference might occur. Idealized transference describes when a patient assumes the therapist has certain positive characteristics such as wisdom. If the positive feelings are not too exaggerated, this form of transference may be useful for the therapist-patient relationship. Negative transference might be at work when a patient has feelings about their therapist such as suspicion or anger, that might seem to be based on experiences from past relationships. A patient's experience of sexual or romantic feelings about a therapist has been called sexualized transference. The concept dates back to Freud, who positioned that some patients fall in love with their therapist because of the context of the psychoanalysis not because of the actual characteristics of the therapist, meaning that because they're opening up, because of the things that they are revealing being so intimate, that is why they believe they are feeling romantic feelings. Later theorists distinguished between erotic transference, which can involve sexual fantasies that a patient realizes are unrealistic, and eroticized transference, a more intense and problematic pattern that may include explicit sexual overtures from a patient. Countertransference refers to a therapist's reaction to a patient, including a therapist's emotional responses to a patient's feelings. 
as when a patient seems to transfer feelings about someone else to the therapist, the therapist may have certain feelings about this. Annoyance, perhaps, that might be partially linked to irrelevant factors, such as the patient's resemblance to another annoying person that is part of the therapist's actual life. Directing feelings of attraction, anger, or other emotions toward a patient can provide insight or can harm the therapeutic relationship. So it can benefit therapists, but also hurt the patients. And you need to be aware of the phenomenon and be able to address it immediately. The therapist who determine that their emotional response to a patient may hinder their ability to work with them objectively may adjust accordingly by asking someone to seek another therapist. They may also provide you with a referral. A therapist may also use observations of their feelings about a patient to make inferences about how other people might feel about this specific patient. The idea of the therapist as a blank screen or a mirror is traditionally considered important in psychoanalytic therapy. In short, the therapist seeks to remain somewhat anonymous to the patient. The aim is to allow aspects of the patient's unconscious to come to light in their interactions with their therapist, including through healthy forms of transference, which is theorized to be more likely when a therapist does not reveal too much personal information about themselves. Many therapists consider transference and its interpretation to be a therapeutic opportunity. By bringing attention to relational dynamics, such as a tendency to feel disproportionately angry or anxious in certain kind of interactions, a therapist can try to help a patient understand and address patterns that might contribute to problems that they have outside of therapy. However, in some cases, such as when a patient shows hostility towards their therapist, or overt sexual interest, transference may pose a threat to their therapeutic relationship and it will have to be managed. Now, when Marty Markowitz stepped into the office of Dr. Isaac Hirschkopf in 1981, he was a wealthy 39-year-old man and he was at his lowest point in life. His parents had recently died an uncle was threatening to oust him from the family's lucrative textile company, which supplied fabric for the uniforms for both the Olympics and the Super Bowl. And his fiancee had just left him after he had asked her to sign a prenup. He was encouraged by his rabbi to visit Dr. Ike, as he was called, a charismatic shrink who, though only in his 20s, already claimed to have Gwyneth Paltrow and singer Courtney Love among his clients. The two men struck up an instant rapport, and soon, Marty was seeing his therapist three times a week. But with Marty's confidence already extraordinarily low, Ike proceeded to chip away at it further. Within three sessions a week, on Hirschkopf's couch, Martin gradually became convinced that his family were there causing problems in his life. He says very quietly, over about an 18-month period, I was subtly grooming, I was suddenly being groomed, and that grooming was aimed at taking over my business affairs. In 1983, Martin was persuaded to undermine his younger sister, Phyllis Shapiro, who worked at the, fa at the fabric company with him, by reducing her wages and not inviting her to his second bar mitzvah. 
Ike convinced his patient that no one cared about him apart from Ike himself. According to Marty, some two years after their first session, Ike was already instructing him to lower his sister's pay by $5,000, which he admits he did several times. Fearing she was going to lose everything, Phyllis removed money and gold coins from accounts in Switzerland, which she held jointly with her brother. If Phyllis left Marty a message or sent him a birthday card, Ike instructed him to show these to him so he could interpret their meaning. As Marty later admitted, it seemed like I was in a cult. What does every good cult leader do? The first thing is to separate you from your family. The shrink told his client to sack his sister and sent her a letter saying she wouldn't inherit a penny from him. According to a podcast about the situation, Hirschkopf told his patient, you don't have a family. Don't worry about it. My family is going to be your family. My kids will be like your nieces and nephews, and we're going to make a social life for you. This is so disturbing. This is so incredibly wrong. Anytime a therapist offers to become personally involved in your life, that is crossing a line. Number one boundary when it comes to therapist and patient relationships, they should not be personally involved in your life in any way, shape, or form. They, you should not be inviting them to your holiday party. And even if you do, they should be saying no. Um, they should not be, you know, they should not be inviting you as a patient to their holiday party. Uh, they should not, um, be stopping by your house. Uh, they should not be going to you like your kid's birthday party or graduate, none of that. You should not be involved in each other's personal life in any way, shape or form. And a lot of times people feel very grateful to the therapist and they wanna give them presents. We have a limit. We are not allowed to accept anything that has a value of more than $60. Even that is pushing it. Most practices will not allow you to accept anything at all. Um, I think the only time I ever accepted anything um, from a patient, their mother um, made me a scarf. I think that's the only time I've ever accepted anything was when this mother uh, handed in me a scarf. So like there's very set boundaries and, and practice to practice is different. Most places I have been, you're not allowed to accept anything, period this current clinic that I work at now, it's $60. You cannot accept anything that has a value of over $60. Um, so him saying this should have been a massive red flag and he should have immediately stopped seeing him as a therapist. And he was as good as his work, creating a fabulous social life within Marty's home in the Hamptons. The only problem was Marty played a very small role in it. By the beginning of 1984, Martin had written a new will which left everything to an organization called the Urine Foundation. Harshkoff and his wife were, of course, the directors of the foundation. The psychiatrist also talked his patient out of relationships which had the potential to lead to marriage because he's keeping him alienated from friends and family. He wants to ensure he has zero support system except him. This is textbook grooming. He has groomed him from the beginning. 
And this is exactly what cult leaders do. They alienate you from your friends and your family. They make sure that you are dependent on the cult. This is what people do in abusive relationships. They alienate you from your friend and the family. They make sure you're financially dependent on them. It, absolutely, he groomed him from the beginning. The psychiatrist also talked um, to Marty about a property that he owned in Southampton. In 1986, Ike instructed him to buy the adjoining house and promptly took it over, starting to host legendary parties. The invoca invitations came from Dr. Ike and his family with no mention of me, Marty wrote in a note. He had least thought the he had least thought he would have the foresight to keep him as part of these parties. Marty's job during the parties, however, was to make drinks, serve food, and clean up. So basically, he was funding everything, but he was being treated like the help. Yeah, he's, he, he even says, and I quote, people thought I was the caretaker. Guests were treated to tours of the stunning property, which featured koi ponds, a professionally designed 18-hole miniature golf course, a hot tub, a basketball court, a swimming pool, all of which were installed at Dr. Mike's behest, but paid for by Marty. No, no, no. This is absolutely beyond unacceptable. Jesus. Moreover, frame pictures of Ike opposing with several different celebrities were on the walls of Marty's house, which Marty paid to have professionally framed. That's insane. No. If they were particularly lucky, Guests might have caught a glimpse of one of the 12 books Dr. Ike had written, but never got published. He had Marty type them up. No, oh, that's so wrong. As if all of this was not bizarre enough, Ike took over the main property and put his professional name on the mailbox. Marty was kicked out and moved to the guest house. How are you forced to live in the guest house in your own home, your own property? Mm, that's insane. He wasn't even allowed to put his own food in his own kitchen. He had to keep it in his bedroom in the guest house. No, not content with using Marty's money to buy tables at lavish fundraisers. Ike was commanding such a presence in his patient's life. He was, no, no, no. He was eventually made president of Marty's company. Marty also made Ike joint signatory of his Swiss bank account. Oh, Jesus, which contained almost a million dollars. And that's why it was such a good idea Phyllis got her money out because she would have had nothing. And in 1991, Marty rewrote his will again, leaving his entire estate to Rebecca and giving Ike power of attorney Rebecca as Ike's wife, meaning that um, he was busily warding Marty off of relationships, accusing his dates with quite staggering chutzpah of being gold diggers. Yeah, yeah, you're going to call them gold diggers, but you made this man make you the president of his business. You had him put your name on his bank accounts. He is throwing parties. For you are throwing parties at his expense. He has you living in the guest house of your home, but they're gold diggers. The nerve, the unmitigated gall. Though he conservatively estimates a loss of Jesus Christ, 
$4.5 million due to Dr. Ike, as well as $3 million in therapy fees. Marty claims to have lost $1.5 million after investing in a Ponzi scheme that Dr. Ike suggested. The shoe finally dropped when in 2010, Marty underwent a hernia operation. Ike, his supposed friend of 30 years, didn't even bother to visit him in the hospital. Marty later admitted, and I quote, I was devastated. I began to question the whole basis of our relationship. He cut all ties with Ike shortly afterwards and changed his will immediately. That he later admitted was the final straw. Not long afterwards, Marty contacted his sister Phyllis, to whom he hadn't spoken in almost 30 years, thanks to Ike. When she answered the phone, she told her brother, I've been waiting for this call for 27 years. Since then, the siblings have been catching up on lost time, taking holidays together all over the world. Indeed, it has been after Mar it was after Marty introduced his sister to neighbor Joe Nokera, saying, this is my sister Phyllis. I haven't seen her in 27 years, but Joe's curiosity was piqued. Joe proceeded to turn this into a podcast that was then adapted for an Apple Plus TV show. Marty showed him all the documents and photos he had kept of his time with Ike. That's when I knew, said Joe, that this was a story that needed to be told. After the launch of the podcast, other former patients of Dr. Ike started to come forward, including one who said she had been told to rewrite her, her will in favor of the doctor's daughters. Marty filed his first complaint against Dr. Ike with the New York State Department of Health in 2012. It took seven years to investigate, and finally, the doctor was stripped of his license to practice medicine in 2021. It found 16 specific instances of professional misconduct from fraudulent exercising undue influence, which would be using the grooming and countertransference of Marty, who is now 79. Marty has managed to get his life back together, and after rebuilding the relationship with his sister, he also got back to running the family company and, as he states, getting his mojo back. Moreover, after having his love interest repeatedly scared away by Dr. Ike, he finally found love on the Thai island of Phuket. After retiring, he plans to spend half the year there with his girlfriend and put the memories of being used for his wealth far behind him. Good for Marty. I mean, it's awful that it took 30 years for him to understand what was happening to him and to bring his family back into his life. But like I said, I have heard numerous stories of horrible, ridiculous um, doctor behaviors. I had a friend told me about how she saw a therapist and um, she was talking about her pet at the time was very sick. And the next time she went to therapy, the therapist had booked her pet a vet appointment with her brother. Wildly inappropriate, it actually violates doctor-patient privilege in the United States. Um, she immediately stopped going to her um, and reported the HIPAA violation, which is uh, what we call the law for um, doctor-patient privilege in the United States. But it's things like that. Um, 
red flags. As soon as you feel a red flag, you feel something isn't right, you can immediately just stop the sessions. You don't have to carry them on. You don't have to feel like you have some sense of loyalty. Anytime you feel uncomfortable, um, if it's a bigger practice and there's more than one person, um, usually they'll have forms to allow you to transfer um, your therapist. If not, if it's a solo practice, just stop going. You don't owe anybody an explanation. So that is this week's story. Next week, we are going to look at a man who decided it would just be easier. No, that's probably not quite right. Better for his reputation if he faked his death rather than file for bankruptcy. Because that's just so shameful that death is better, apparently. But in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.